This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. It's official. The hydrogen economy is here. The global transition to clean energy is gathering momentum and it's clear that hydrogen will play a critical role. Biotech offers modular, scalable, and rapidly deployable hydrogen production systems through sales, rentals, leases, and gas as a service to customers worldwide. If you're interested to learn more, visit biotech.us to find out how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low, or zero-carbon hydrogen today. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I am Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Senior Associate in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. On today's episode, we are very excited to be publishing our discussion with Josipa Petrunich, President and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium. Chris and I had the pleasure of recording our chat with Josipa a couple of weeks back at the Hydrogen Decade Virtual Summit, and we are delighted to be featuring it on this episode of EAH. Josipa is a leading voice in the North American zero emission transportation world, and her team is spearheading some fantastic projects throughout Canada aimed at decarbonizing the country's urban transit systems. She's one of the most impressive speakers in the space, and we hope you guys enjoy our conversation with her as much as we did. Before we get started, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Also, if you enjoy the show and you want to support us, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us reach a larger audience and promote the show. And with that, let's get started. All right, guys. So this will be the first live recorded interview. Uh, I guess live has a little bit of a different definition since we're doing it as a virtual event, but it's going to be our first live recorded interview of the EAH podcast, and we're going to be having Josipa Petrunich, the CEO and president of Qtrick. But firstly, guys, how are you doing? Chris, yourself, what's going on in London? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's, it's busy time. Um, I think a couple of people might have seen um, recently or relatively recently, I guess, when this comes out, um, that the Hydrogen Council put out a really exciting report on global investment around hydrogen and said that about 50% of all the major global projects or hydrogen are in Europe. And I think you can see that. I think you can see the energy and the momentum at the moment, which is positive. So lots of bits and pieces moving in the background, including the UK Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association's Green Hydrogen Policy Paper that we're releasing on Budget Day. So lots to look forward to, Andrew. And actually, you know, it'd be good to get the Canadian perspective um, from Giuseppe and and learn a little bit about Qtrick's take on it, because I always think Canada's an interesting market for hydrogen policy. Absolutely. But Chris, before we jump into Canada... Patrick, yourself, how are things? What's going on in your world? Eh, not a lot. It's uh, it's hopefully closing out of winter, Andrew. So um, looking forward to the the change of the seasons. But um, yeah, taking it taking it really reasonably handy. Did you get any uh, time on the slopes this winter, Patrick? I did not. I did not, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> well, I don't think any of us did, dude. So it's not you know, it's not a it's not a slight, buddy. It just hurts a little bit. <laughs> 
from what I understand as a as a lone Brit, you know, apparently mechanical uh, items in the US, things like wind turbines, just are particularly bad at freezing in the cold weather that you guys are having over there. You know, this is true. This is true. Got gas turbines, wellheads, all, all sorts of things are freezing. True, true. And speaking of freezing, guys, Josippa from uh, the American neighbor to the north is going to be joining us today. Josippa, as I mentioned, guys, is CEO and president of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium, otherwise known as QTRIC. I think you guys would agree that we, having had the pleasure of seeing her speak in person in Whistler, uh, what? in 2019. She is a pretty amazing and engaging speaker. So I think we're delighted to be recording with her. Is there anything in particular that uh, you guys are interested to hear about from her? Patrick, do you want to you want to dive in before I do? I guess the, uh, the applied application is going to be interesting, right? Because here we are, we've had a lot of announcements, a lot of opportunities start to, to roll out. It's going to be interesting to see what the advantages they're seeing in terms of deployment and, and, and what effectively they're starting to to realize as the the kind of optimized use case or design case for for managing these things so yeah i think a bit more of a practical insight would be would be cool well and on that kind of practical insight i think it's always worth remembering i'm sure we'll get into it that actually canada really has been this incredible hub for um hydrogen activities especially fuel cells and you know on the sort of subject of transport which Qtrick and your super are sort of specialists in you know, fuel cell buses are certainly not anything new to Canada. And Ballard's experience uh, in that field, you know, in Vancouver, it was a really nice story of that. Um, you know, and of course, uh, you, know, you mentioned Whistler earlier in the conversation. Well, you know, we went and saw um, HTEC's Toyota Mirai, Colin's Toyota Mirai, when we were last over in Whistler. And, and it is it is slowly starting to come there. Um, there was also a couple of comments recently in the press about Hydra Energy that's doing some work at the moment in Canada on hydrogen dual fuel combustion technology. So, you know, I think given the, you know, actually quite dramatic landscape in Canada, you have huge geographical distances, but you have incredible access to renewable resources as well as oil and gas resources. You have this massive neighbor to the south, but, you know, you also have quite a lot of capability within Canada as well. Um, you know, it is a quite a good hotbed for innovation around aviation and, well, and sorry, not aviation, around general mobility and zero emission mobility technology. So it'd be good to get her perspective on, you know, how you think about these things in, a, in an applied senses. Excellent, guys. Well, let's get Josipa on the phone. But first, we're going to quickly jump to a message from our newest sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. We all know the transportation sector is facing increased pressure to transition to zero emission solutions. And uh, to borrow a phrase from our dear friend Patrick Malloy, this is the thing. Hydrogen provides a clear pathway to decarbonization. Biotech offers its customers turnkey solutions for hydrogen supply that enable vehicle manufacturers, transit agencies, fleet operators, and logistics organizations worldwide to adapt to climate regulations and produce hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles at prices that compete directly with diesel. To learn more about how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low- or zero-carbon hydrogen, visit biotech.us today. Thank you for joining us. And uh, just want to start off by asking you to uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, Cutrick does and a bit of background about yourself and the work you do at the helm of the organization. 
And maybe just quickly as well, just so that you can tell me and Andrew whether it's cut trick or Q trick, because we're oh, it, head around how you actually pronounce <laughs> thank it. Thank you, Chris. I was too embarrassed to ask, so that is a that is an excellent question. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, it is Q trick. Although we appreciate any and all sorts of uh, pronunciations. We'll take it since my own name is difficult. I think it fits the whole metaphoric pathway. Um, so thanks so much for having me here. I really appreciate it, Andrew. And I'm just going to check that you can see my video, okay? We can. It has a very nice Q-trick background. Yeah. Ta -da. Uh, there we go. So thanks very much again for having us. Um, and uh, essentially, it's a great pleasure to be here to talk about hydrogen and the future of hydrogen because it's a great, brave new world going forward. Great to have you on the show. Um, I, I think the kind of obvious question that uh, we have for you, given the role with Q-trick, is really, can you talk a little bit to how you see the role of hydrogen and fuel cells fitting into the clean transport story? Uh, and obviously, you're going to come at it from the... Canadian perspective, but I'd quite like if you could also bring in how what happens in Canada, you know, to some extent also interplays with America. So I think people, especially in Europe, don't appreciate how close there is a lot of overlap in how those two markets move. And it'd be great if you could kind of touch on that as well. Yeah, happy to do so. I mean, I think if you're Canadian or American over the last few years, minus the pandemic, probably one of the hottest topic issues in the news was the renegotiation of NAFTA and the movement forward for a new North American free trade agreement, which will affect the hydrogen economy going forward. There's no doubt about that. It will also affect the zero emissions transit landscape overall. So in terms of you know what we do in Canada and the Canadian landscape to start there, at Qtrick, what our whole goal is as a nonprofit technology consortium is we operate a lot like a tech startup, although we don't pay out dividends. Instead, we cycle the money we make back into technology projects. And the whole idea is to get these projects out the door, to create intellectual property, retain the people in Canada so they're not all exported out of the country, and then try to get that technology into transit systems so they actually operate better, more efficiently at a lower cost and provide a better service, which we definitely need given that we have a low, small population, rather low population density, spread out geography, we are energy intense as a nation. So it is very challenging to figure out how to get people from Vancouver to Toronto without combusting a whole bunch of fossil fuels. And that is the challenge of the Canadian landscape. Within that, over the last 10 years, of course, a lot of what we focus on are transit technology. So buses and streetcars and coach vehicles. And of course, within that landscape, the goal has been to get zero emissions technology out the door. And there's all the technological challenges that come with the complexity of alternating from a diesel fossil fuel propelled system to electrons or hydrogen as carriers of electrons with all the new energy infrastructure around that. And so over the last few years, the biggest challenges we faced in this landscape is that Canada didn't have a hydrogen strategy. So a lot of the focus in the transit industry was on battery electrification for the good reason that most of our grid is very clean and very green. And so if it's not coming from nuclear, and I know that in Europe, nuclear is not seen as clean and green, but it is here in North America because of GHGs. We also have a lot of solar and, and wind power and hydro. And so because of that clean grid, electrons made a lot of sense. But as you, many of your participants will know, when you're trying to power up buses and you're trying to get that amount of energy into low density batteries, which is what we're still effectively dealing with in comparison to fossil fuel, there's a lot of applications where it's very challenging unless you install a lot of chargers with a lot of power in a lot of city streets. And that's gonna happen in some places, but in some places it's a lot more simplistic and scalable to go to hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cell buses and coach vehicles because of course they've got that range extension. So they're battery electric vehicles, but they've got the range extension 
The big challenge in Canada was no green hydrogen supply chain, no strategy at the provincial levels, nobody at the federal level for the past decade saying hydrogen is the way of the future. So without those market signals, it's very hard to be able to retain major companies like Ballard or Hydrogenics. And it's very hard to convince the Enbridges of the world or the petroleum producers of Alberta to start shifting gear to pumping money into green hydrogen, right? So over the last couple of years, what's been great in particular the last year, and I think this has been heavily motivated by COVID-19, really focusing effort on the Build Back Better, the greener rebuild of the economy. We now have a federal government that issued a hydrogen strategy and has clearly said hydrogen will propel transportation of the future and they're looking for marquee demonstration projects. And we have the Ontario government preparing a hydrogen strategy to position the auto sector and the energy sector of that province as leaders of the future. We have British Columbia that's already had a hydrogen strategy for a couple of years to make sure it retains that hydrogen capacity in and around the greater Vancouver area. And we now have Quebec, which has issued a hydrogen strategy around Hydro-Quebec, which is one of the biggest utilities in the world, producing loads of clean green electrons, now looking at ways to store those electrons in hydrogen and then distribute that hydrogen for other applications. So compared to five years ago, it's just a complete paradigmatic shift in the way Canadians are thinking about the future of their energy economy and the way that in the transportation sector, we're now looking at being able to access green hydrogen supplies that government has given the market signals towards. So that's essentially where we are in the Canadian landscape. And you know, your question, Chris, of how it's affecting North America. Well, of course, on the transit side, our bus manufacturers, the new flyers of the world in particular, the biggest bus manufacturer and distributor of buses in North America, they provide hydrogen fuel cell buses. We know California is absorbing them as part of their move to zero emissions transit in California. There's a big booming industry, at least in the transit manufacturing landscape. On the energy side of the equation, an even bigger dialogue. So, of course, this happens, Andrew, you're going to have to forgive me because you know, we, we ask a question and our guests touch on other questions that we already have. So I'm going <laughs> it, to it it throw the order around that we've got. Yeah. It wouldn't <laughs> so, be our podcast without Chris interrupting. So, yeah, go for it. <laughs> no, but so, Giuseppe, you talked about the Canadian hygiene strategy and something that I only just saw today, so it's probably new to you and many of the listeners, is um, so Hydrogen Council just put out a brand new paper. It's just released today. And they basically came out with a startling statistic, which is they, they see about $300 billion of hydrogen projects currently today across 228 different um, individual projects. But 85% of all of that value is in Europe, Asia, and Australia. You know, so actually the amount that is in North America is very, very small. And obviously you talked about all these hydrogen strategies and it's something uh, within Canada, both federal and, uh, and also kind of at the regional level, uh, sorry, national level. Um, is it a case of too many papers and too little deployments? And how do you move, you know, how, how do you see in Canada and how do you see Qtix's role in, in kind of saying, okay, great, we've done the papers, um, you know, but this is why investors actually should be looking at the market and putting money in here as opposed to what they seem to be doing, which is looking everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Well, the hugely packed question for which I have a biblical exegesis and probably a few PhDs to answer, but uh, let's try and like uh, distill it to a couple core points. One is there's no doubt that Canada's behind, as is North America in general. You know, I'm not going to speak to the Mexican equation. That's a whole other dialogue on its own in terms of Mexico's energy status right now and where it's at. But there is no doubt that the United States and Canada are behind. And it's also fair to say that had there been a continuation of the kinds of environmental policies 
energy transition policies of the Obama administration over the past four years, we would all be further ahead. Uh, so it is fair to say that there's been a four-year hiatus, and not just a passive hiatus, but an antithesis really over the last four years to movement in this direction. So it's not surprising that a lot of the innovative announcements are happening outside of North America. And you might say, yeah, but you know, we've had Justin Trudeau in power for the last five years or so. So he, he was not the same as uh, President Trump on the environmental position. That is true, but Canada is one-tenth of the population of the United States. Our economy is tiny by global standards and in comparison to the United States and the behemoths. And if we were to draw a comparison in the auto sector and electrification, Canada's emission standards for automobiles, light duty and heavy duty, come from the CAFE standards. So we use the corporate average fuel economy standards of the United States. We don't generate our own per se, we follow those because all the cars Canadians buy are a subset of the vehicles available to Americans. And all the vehicles that manufacturers in Canada produce, and we do have branch plants of major automobile companies, they're just subsets of the vehicles that have driven the American market and particularly the Californian market. So we're always following the lead of the United States because of the integration of the North American uh, economic zone, in particular on automotive trucking and heavy duty manufacturing and on the energy picture. And so even if we stood up as Canadians over the last four years and said, here's our zero emissions plan, here's our uh, corporate average fuel economy standards, here's our hydrogen strategy, and we're not going to pay attention to or try to align with American standards or movements in America, uh, there just would be very little positive outcome of that from major industrial players because the market's too small. Probably it'd end up in court as some of those things have in the past, or it would just be ignored and fought and lobbied against because the market's too small to drive global standards per se. Now, having said that, Canada can act and we've been able to demonstrate we can act because your question, Chris, said, well, you know, what's the role of Q-Trick? Well, I do believe as Canadians, we can punch above our weight. We are super smart. We're super intense. We've got a really good economy. We subsidize a lot of the social goods of streets and education and healthcare. So we've got a relatively healthy population to boot. There's no reason why we can't be leaders. And what we can lead in and have demonstrated we can lead in are major demonstration projects that then change the industry standard for North America. And as an example, in our electric bus zone, we launched an integrated electric bus project with Vancouver, Brampton, and York Region. Four years ago, people told us we were crazy. And our colleagues in the United States said it could never happen in the US. You can get cities to participate on standardization of electric buses and high power chargers. We got that done in Canada, and that has helped to publish and deploy the J3105 high power charging system standard. So we basically launched a project that set the North American standard for high power charging for buses, which is fundamentally needed for the entire North American transit market. And that's been acknowledged. So on the hydrogen side, we're working to do the same thing. We don't have a major marquee hydrogen demonstration deployment in Canada in transportation. It is a bit bonkers. You know, if you're in the hydrogen landscape, uh, to be in a country where you've had Ballard grow through, you know, the ups and uh, lows of what Ballard has gone through in the last 30 years, you have Hydrogenics that has now been bought out by Cummins with their electrolyzer technology. You have Air Liquide and a whole host of others that are producing green hydrogen, including Enbridge, major global corporation. And yet you have zero hydrogen 
heavy duty powertrain vehicles on the transit or coach side on the road and very few light duty cars, right? At most, we have a marquee trucking project in Alberta that was kind of like a Hail Mary pass of the, uh, the past couple of years of that government trying to figure out some ways to diversify an economy that's fundamentally uh, non-diverse in Alberta. So it, it's not a great story in Canada. You know, we've got all this leadership potential and no demo projects. And that's why we've really focused our effort in the last uh, year on getting a major hydrogen bus project out the door in the city of Mississauga that will bring hydrogen back. And we call it the hydrogen homecoming. The idea is getting these fuel cell buses out the door, get about three to 400 kilograms of hydrogen being used daily. That can scale up very quickly to 30, 40, 50 buses and use green hydrogen that Enbridge is producing north of Toronto right now off surplus electrons. And that allows for a local green hydrogen supply, a distribution to a local transit agency and deployment in a fuel application. That kind of stuff has to happen more. And those demo projects are in the tens of millions, but they create billions of dollars of economic opportunity over a five-year process. So I think our big gap, Chris, has been, we look at this industry globally and say we have capacity, but we haven't done a great job as Canadians of doing that. If you use TRL, technology readiness level lingo, we have not done a great job of deploying TRL 567. We know as Canadians, we fund TRL 123 all over the place. Our universities are very well funded. And then we graduate a bunch of people and they all leave. Right? So we don't do the demonstration projects right in the middle that get us from the university to the commercialization stuff. And that's where QTRIP falls. And I think that's where as Canadians, we really need to focus if we want a piece of this pie. Well, Josepha, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the, the, like a particular demonstration project. You, so QTRIC is involved in the Pan-Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Electric Bus Demonstration and Integration Trial, which I'm starting to realize Canadians may be big on long titles for these projects, but... <laughs> we are, uh, at least. <laughs> uh, I would, uh, you know, I would actually just like to ask, you know, sort of what is that, what is that demonstration project? What is QTRIC's role? And then... Uh, I'm going to I'm going to do a compound question here and ask you to talk a little bit about uh, you know what the biggest uh, challenges you guys see in deploying uh, fuel cell electric buses in urban transit systems uh, are both from the vehicle and the the infrastructure perspectives. Sure, and maybe Andrew, you can remind me of the second barrel of your double barrel question because in other yeah, absolutely, it, that's a, you know, yeah, we the first one. <laughs> we rolled two questions on our list together there, so yeah, absolutely. We'll make it work. Sip more to fire with, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Pan-Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Bus Project um, is the project I just referenced with Mississauga as the lead. But the reason that it's referenced as a Pan-Canadian project, even though it's really led by Mississauga right now, is because four years ago when we started the project, we started it on the same day we started the Pan-Canadian Electric Bus Integration and Standardization Trial. And that project is multiple cities, Vancouver, Brampton, York Region, at the time St. Catherine, Oshawa, other cities were involved for a consortium group uh, deployment of standardized battery electric charging systems, right? So we started the projects on the same day. The problem is in Canada, over the last 10 years, there's been this real cultural inertia against hydrogen fuel cell buses because of the BC Whistler trial primarily. And it, it is very much misplaced. Uh, I think that trial, which successfully deployed early prototype hydrogen fuel cell buses, that were packaged together with New Flyer and Ballard with the support of hydrogen coming in from Quebec, uh, that did deploy. And those buses did function in the Rocky Mountains of British Columbia during the Olympics. And they moved athletes uh, from location to location. 
The problem is, you know, from a project management standpoint, not all the risks were thought through. And in any kind of early deployment, anything that will go wrong will go wrong. Uh, and it did. I mean, there were a lot of challenges with that project. And if you hear New Flyer talk about it or BC Transit, the big problem was that there was no Uber mensch responsible for all aspects of the project. So if the portion of the powertrain went down or a portion of the supply chain went down, there was no like Uber level program management responsible entity that could oversee all of that. And BC Transit was brought into it to deploy and operate the buses, but not necessarily to program manage the whole thing. So you can see if you've done like project management 101, you, you see where the problems come with that. Uh, the issue therefore is in 2014 or so, the last of those buses was decommissioned by BC Transit. They were deemed just too difficult to operate given that they were a subfleet within a major fleet. And given that, frankly, in British Columbia, nobody thought about setting up a local hydrogen supply chain. So over that entire period, hydrogen was being shipped across the country. Like we're talking thousands of kilometers across Canada. Talk about getting rid of the green profile when you're shipping hydrogen on diesel trucks. So that whole project created like a wave of inertia and opposition to hydrogen in the transit industry in Canada. So when we started the Pan-Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Bus Project, we were dealing with a bunch of transit agencies where folks showed up and said, we will never, ever, 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 ever under any conditions ever foreseeable in future, purchase and procure and integrate hydrogen fuel cell buses. So that was the starting point, whereas the starting point for battery electric was, we don't know what this stuff will do. We think it might not work, but we're being told to pursue it. So we better figure out what it is. That's a very different starting point four years ago. So our Pan-Canadian hydrogen fuel cell bus project had as its vision to relaunch 30 to 40 hydrogen fuel cell buses in Canada with a set of champion transit agencies that were willing to roll up their sleeves, absorb some of the technological stuff that's gonna go wrong in that kind of deployment, but fundamentally get local green hydrogen in a supply chain to those transit buses. Fast forward to where we are today, we have Mississauga leading. The goal is to get York Region, Brampton, TTC, which is the Toronto Transit Commission, all around the greater Toronto and Hamilton area for them to all get involved in a joint procurement or at least coordinated joint procurement so that we're getting to 50, 60, 70 fuel cell buses. And of course, the reason we want to do that is fuel cell buses are very expensive right now. Right, they're three times the price of a diesel bus. So if you want to drop that price point and get a real win for hydrogen, you really need volume. And the only way to get there is through multiple cities buying 10, 20, 30 of these things in the next year. Uh, so that's essentially what the project is intended to do. And to the great credit of Enbridge and Hydrogenics, they did invest millions of dollars. They got an electrolyzer up and running in Toronto. It is producing green hydrogen. And right now it's being wasted, essentially dissipated because there's no user of it. Uh, and so down the highway, we have Mississauga with buses that they need fueled. So it is a great opportunity. Everybody is looking to Mississauga to lead the way. And I expect and hope to be back in a year talking about how we got to 50, 60 as more cities came into the fold. Yeah, and there's a couple of interesting bits here, of course. I mean, one of the funny stories that I discovered was that actually one of those fuel cell buses that was in um, Vancouver is now operating in Costa Rica. And it's one of Costa Rica's fuel cell buses as part of the Ad Astra project with several Toyota Mirai there. So you know, maybe it didn't work in Canada, but actually has given a second life to a Central American country that has very good sustainability uh, credentials. So kind of a funny way to see that. That's the point. It's not that they didn't work. No. 
that they weren't managed, right? And, and there's a difference. Like the technology did what the technology was set up to do, and it was a demonstration project. So of course, stuff went wrong. Like that, you go in eyes wide open when you're trying to create something like that. Uh, the problem is there was the, none of that political uber mensch coordination to say whose responsibility is it to pick up when things go wrong. And when that doesn't exist for transit, you know, transit has like a zero risk tolerance level because people stuck at a stop when a bus doesn't arrive are very angry riders and they should be because they can't get to work, right? So I understand that there's a zero tolerance there, but I think as Canadians, we could have done better planning that one out. So I'm glad that Costa Rica is benefiting. Well, it's, it's interesting because we've also had Rob Delcour on the show, right? And Rob Delcour was involved uh, with hydrogenics, but also with actually the British first experience with fuel cell buses in London. And your point about reliability, you know, Rob was saying, you know, they had three dedicated engineers for 10 buses. And by the end, they had half of one because they'd yeah. overspect the buses to make sure they couldn't under any circumstances fail. But you know, it is amazing that I think the first fuel cell buses that they put on the road together were about $2 million. The ones per bus in Vancouver was the figure I heard. And now they're going at equivalent buses under half a million. So it shows you the difference of, sort of 10, 15 years mm. in terms of the cross side. Uh, a question for you that I do think is just a technical one that's interesting is from a systems perspective, you mentioned that you've got a lot of green power inside the grid already in Canada, um, but actually operationally, one of the things people have talked about is weather. And obviously, if you're from markets like the UK or even a lot of Europe, you don't tend to have that extremity. But in Canada, you guys do. And so I'm wondering maybe if you could talk to, from an operational perspective, how Qtrick's been looking at how a fuel cell bus might work as opposed to battery electric in the fact that you do have quite extreme weather, notably extreme cold, and how that creates challenges for zero emission transport that maybe is not the same in a lot of other markets, but makes it quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll preface that question, Chris, by saying not only has the price point dropped off in comparison to 10 years ago, but the efficiency has nearly doubled. And that's a big point to consider too, right? If people are thinking about buses from 10 years ago, the buses can pretty much go twice the distance on the same amount of hydrogen now. The powertrain has been revised, right? The motors are better, the batteries are better, the, the transmission system is better, the power electronics are better. So they're going further with less energy, but we still got to get those price points down due to volume. Uh, now, in terms of the challenges, there's most definitely a consideration there. You know, if you want to go to zero emissions transit, which everybody does, you've basically got three real options on the table. Pure battery electric with high or low power charging, and pretty much most of our systems are going to need a combination of low power charging and high power charging en route to be able to achieve a portion of their fleet electrification. Hydrogen fuel cell with green hydrogen, you could go to SMR, and we have a lot of SMR available to get this stuff out the door. But if your climate action goal is zero emissions, well, twill, you're going to have to find green hydrogen packaged into a hydrogen bus and deployed. Or your third option is renewable natural gas pumped into a compressed natural gas bus. Uh, those are the three options you've really got in Canada right now. From a hydrogen perspective, there are a number of benefits within fleets where there no doubt will be a mixed fleet solution in the future. So if you're looking at Vancouver or Montreal or Toronto, the fleets are massive. Some of the routes and some of the blocks are massive. And then add to it weather conditions and crush capacity, which is when people get on the bus and it's so crush capacity, you can't close the door, right? There's too many people on the bus. Now, during COVID, we forget that transit ridership can sometimes go through the roof like that, but that's going to come back. People want to live in cities. There's still jobs in cities. So we're going to have crush capacity again. When you have crush capacity, 
and you have a minus 20 day or a minus 15 day, or frankly, a plus 30 day or a plus 40 day uh, in the Celsius degree spectrum, you're turning on that air conditioning or turning on that heat. You've got a lot of weight on the vehicle. You're making a lot of stops and starts. So your acceleration, deceleration, you know, you're creating regen braking, but nothing's a perpetual motion machine. So you're never getting back as much energy as you're putting out there. Suddenly your battery electric bus needs a lot more energy. It's going to need to top up throughout the day very regularly. And you may not have that scheduled time, right, in your driver schedule or in your route schedule or creating it is going to create the need for additional buses or additional drivers. So on the hydrogen side, what we are seeing are there are some really obvious applications where it makes life a lot less complex for transit in the transition. One is those routes that are very long routes with very low downtime, or they, they are kind of linear and they go all the way out and then they turn back and come all the way in. And there's really nowhere on the route that you could stop to charge because you'd have to otherwise install a $1 million charger for one bus at the end of a route. Doesn't make sense. Financially doesn't make sense. Operationally doesn't make sense. So those work. Then the other conditions are the weather conditions. In the winter, you know, hydrogen does have the benefit that it does generate heat. And in the winter, of course, you could harvest that heat and you can harvest that heat into the heating system as the buses do. And that minimizes your draw on the battery pack and on basically on your hydrogen tank during those winter months. In those winter months, hydrogen buses should be performing better than battery electric buses on an from an energy perspective in terms of auxiliary mode. In the summer, however, Chris, there is the flip side consideration that hydrogen stacks produce heat. And while we think about Canada's cold, we also get very, very hot. We have plus 30 days, plus 40 days in Celsius. So on those very hot days, the hydrogen uh, vehicle does have the issue that it does generate surplus heat. So I wouldn't want to say like it's a complete solution to all weather conditions. There are, is a consideration there about, you know, extricating that excess heat. But in the winter, no doubt, where your battery is degrading in a battery electric bus because your auxiliaries are on, you got to turn on the heat and it's cold outside to start with. So you're reducing capacity. Uh, if your battery management system is not perfect, then the hydrogen bus definitely has an advantage. And, you know, we all saw stories coming out of Europe this year, or rather th this season, about buses having struggles in the battery electric mode. Of everything's going to go wrong that can go wrong. And, you know, I don't want to say like hydrogen's perfect and battery electric is perfect. We're at the start of a technological revolution. Stuff is going to go wrong. We are definitely going to overpay for technology in the next five to 10 years as we figure it out before competition optimizes all this stuff. But in that landscape, in a weather environment like Canada, you're definitely going to want to have a mix of that technology for resiliency. And Josipa, I think, uh, you know, honestly, Chris and I talked about this beforehand. We could probably do another full hour talking about uh, where the advantages and disadvantages lie. And I, I think that would be absolutely amazing. Unfortunately, I think I'm just conscious of our time and I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about policy and the role that uh, policy has in developing these technologies and helping or, or hindering the rollout of projects that fuel cell bus projects, such as the ones you guys are working on. It's, you know, specifically Canada has made uh, quite a bit of news in the hydrogen world with its recent uh, national hydrogen strategy rollout. And we kind of wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think of the national hydrogen strategy as it's been laid out? Where do you see strengths? Where do you see weaknesses? And, and how might it compare to perhaps uh, the United States, which probably does not really have an exemplary hydrogen strategy, but 
uh, to other countries that are looking uh, to build out similar similar strategies? Well, I'll start at the end of your question, work back to the Canadian core of it. Uh, in the United States, it is true that we haven't seen a lot of strategic plans emanate in the last few years that say, here's a target, we're driving a stake in the ground, and we will be leaders in these areas. Under President Biden, that is about to change. I fully expect that there will be a stake in the ground. We will be hydrogen leaders. We will be battery electric leaders. We will be powertrain leaders. We'll be AI leaders. I have no doubt that we're about to see a whole host of you know, post-war style investments into leadership in core technology areas, if nothing else, than just to compete with China. I mean, there's a fundamental economic need there to reposition the American economy. And I have no doubt that that's what we're about to see coming out of the Biden administration. So perhaps we can come back to the issue in another year, a year from now, to see how, like, how have those Biden strategies re-pivoted the entire world economy? Have they been successful in doing so? But I fully expect that that's about to emerge. Now, in the Canadian landscape, at least we got a little bit of a head start, right? So we got a little bit of a head start in getting our own national strategy out the door, which I'm very proud of the Canadian government for doing, because historically, as Canadians, we have not wanted to pick and choose industries. And there's been, you know, keep in mind, we have a very robust bitumen industry in Canada and there's a lot of pressure there to make sure that oil and fossil fuels and pipelines are invested in. So to get anything done in alternative energy in this country is to go up against a behemoth of a global industry that makes a lot of money for a lot of people. Uh, and so as a result, it's even more laudable that we were able to issue a national hydrogen strategy. Within this strategy, it has a couple points that I'm very happy with, but they're ambiguous. So we have more work to do. One is the strategy very clearly says we need a marquee demonstration set of projects, but nowhere does that identify where those marquee projects will be. And so far the only indication without transit included is some trucks in Alberta. That's not sufficient. A marquee transportation set of projects like transit and coach and rail has to have a target and there's no target in the strategy. So that is a bit of a fail that we need to resolve as Canadians. Set a target and the target will be how many Canadians move by shared or individual passenger mobility using hydrogen or zero emissions energy by 2030. Set a percentage and make it so, because otherwise it's ambiguous and it may or may not happen, and then we may or may not hold ourselves accountable. So that is a big gap, I think, in the current strategy. It's the same thing for energy storage or building usage. The strategy outlines a lot of core goals, but no particular sets of targets, at least in the transportation domain. So we want to close that gap, and that's partially what we're working on, is to encourage the government to recognize in the target it did issue of 5,000 zero emissions buses by 2024, at least about 20% of those should be coming from hydrogen. That's a very clear target we can set out. Josipa, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I think, unfortunately, we have to hand over the, uh, hand over the microphone to our colleagues uh, for the next panel, which uh, will be fantastic. And uh, yeah, just thanks again for making the time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks, Chris. All right, guys, whirlwind discussion uh, with Josipa, as is her style. Chris, since Patrick abandoned us, I'm going to start with you. Key takeaways. Well, I mean, I'm not sure how easy it is to condense that. There was quite a lot of material that we went through. What 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 was your highlight part of that discussion? I enjoyed uh, the side note about the uh, fuel cell buses ending up in Costa Rica. That was a fun fact. Well, well done with that one. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, yeah, it's, it's 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 just an amazing story. Ad Astra rocket. I mean, that whole story is completely mad because I mean, the, the founder of Ad Astra rocket is a is a NASA scientist based in Houston, 
and the whole hydrogen story in Costa Rica is his way of giving back to the environment over there. So that's a whole fascinating other story. And we'll try and get them maybe on the podcast at some point. But no, I, you know, I think the interesting thing in some ways around that is, you know, part of the broad theme of the discussion, which is Canada has this incredible legacy with hydrogen and with fuel cells. You know, they've got, you know, they really have been an incubator and a hub for these technologies. And they've had some really exciting pilots. But in some senses, they're also a case study of, where a lot of governments, and I think the UK government sometimes is a really good example of this trap, and Canada's like this too, can do really good fundamental research and really good at getting companies to the prototype scale and getting a few pilots. But when it actually comes from making that leap from pilots and early demonstrations into commercialization, they're just, they missed, they dropped the ball, you know, and the story about the Vancouver buses is in many ways a great example of that, right? I mean, Canada could have been a world leader in exporting and manufacturing fuel cell buses. And, you know, they are a fuel cell world leader, although with a lot more competition now than would have been the case if they'd pushed the boat out more aggressively then, you know, and I think that in some senses is kind of the interesting piece around it, because of all the countries in the world, if you were looking at hydrogen, you would actually sit back and go, Canada's got a fantastic story here. A huge amounts of land, huge amounts of fresh water, incredibly rich solar and wind resources at different times of the year, and also fantastic hydro resources, a lot of which is completely constrained and which they can't supply. They can't supply it to a lot of parts of the US or, or to other international markets. And they also have this oil and gas infrastructure that allows them to export fuels all over the world, right? And they're familiar with that. And they're familiar with how to handle hydrocarbons and how to handle gases. So Canada should be and could be a fantastic hydrogen success story. So in that sense, it was good to kind of get you on and talking about, you know, aspects around all of those themes and then talking about, you know, in the context of transport, why, you know, for Canada specifically, it is interesting, you know, and we probably didn't go enough into the wonky stuff about it, but things like temperature and the type of routes and actually how much of a difference that makes when, you know, you're having to go between minus 30 centigrade up to 30, 40 centigrade across the year and you need a vehicle that's capable of doing that. It, it really is not easy. Um, and especially when you think about the distances traveled and, you know, it's, it's not like the US where, yes, it's a big distance, but there's lots of stuff in between. You know, there are just vast tracts of, I mean, pardon my Canadian listeners, but there is vast tracts of just nothing in Canada where you are driving for hundreds of miles with nothing. And so you know, into that context, something like hydrogen then is really interesting. So I, I, I enjoy kind of going through all those themes with your sipper. And, and I like the optimism, too, because I think there is a lot of reasons to be optimistic about what Canada could do here. Um, and just hopefully now, you know, people like your sipper are pushing this. We will see, you know, companies like Ballard and others really being able to accelerate and make the most of this. And the Canadian government seem to be belatedly getting a little bit more aggressively behind it as well. And Patrick, I know uh, we've given you the homework assignment of going back and uh, listening to the work that Chris and I do when you're not around. So, uh, you know, wanted to get your thoughts. Was there anything that stood out to you when listening uh when listening to the conversation with Giuseppe? Yeah, a, co- a couple of points, but I think I think Chris touched on one or two of them, but. Um, you know the um it does that sometimes that, just sometimes just sometimes. <laughs> um the the point around the uh heating systems in buses so almost the comparable comparable kind of combined heat and power almost style solution in a bus is something that i think when you talk about as she said on a celsius scale negative 20 degree days outside that becomes kind of critical kind of valuable and obviously then the the power performance right kind of important kind of interesting um and demonstrates i think that value 
demonstrated that value pretty 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 clearly right the other one which i think is um i think is interesting right and and she talked talked extensively about the the challenge in the programmatic uh, kind of rollout that they had that there wasn't an overarching structure and design for that first and initial deployment and and how the project suffered for that i think that's that's a lesson that as much as she's right it's it's program management or project management 101 is something for people contemplating pilot projects to very clearly remember that that you know at some point in time there has to be an overarching accountable body that is is ensuring that all pieces are running together um but like you know as as was as was clearly stated you know the buses worked it's not a case of the technology didn't didn't stand up it was a case of that you know sometimes the overall product had design or project or program uh, challenges the other one that really jumped out and i and i think this is a this is a key one given all the announcements we're seeing all the um, commitments all the targets is that if we actually want to make this uh, a real prospect right a real tangible thing we're at the point where there needs to be actual projects and steel in the ground. And her point about the Canadian uh, kind of roadmap being kind of good that it's out there and, and positive and, and some leadership in, in respect of its publication and, and, and focus, the vague kind of um, guidance on the deployed projects, the vagueness on where and how and on what focus is is certainly something that is a it's an easy trap to fall into, especially for kind of policymakers and, and decision makers, because, you know, maybe they aren't familiar with the technology or maybe they're not quite at the stage they want to commit to something. But at the end of the day, we're, we're at a technology point where we can deploy in practically every, every use case. It's a question of will there be the dedication and the leadership to actually decide to deploy um, and will kind of particularly, you know, on, from a, a public financing and a governmental kind of perspective, will there be that determination to to actually make that decision of, yes, we're going to go be a world leader or we're going to be um, conscious of putting the, the kind of the priority of local kind of uh, development of this sector, you know, front and center? You know, what is also interesting and, and you know, we didn't, probably cover it in, in enough detail in some ways is that there are still like you know they do make hydrogen obviously in canada and, and obviously one of the big hydrogen project announcements is the uh air liquide project actually that's uh you know i think it's the eight is it 80 megawatt patrick do you remember off the top of your head it's the i think it's 80 megawatt project that they're doing um you know in uh, in quebec and so you know that is actually a really serious project so there is kind of um there is clearly the capability to deploy, and you know the other thing again that we you know, we've noted on previous episodes of the podcast is the um, you know one of the first large scale commercial um, power to gas projects that reached financial close was BC Hydro, Fortis, and Macquarie. It, you know, doing a I think it was two hundred million Canadian uh, project to inject hydrogen from excess renewables or very very low cost hydro into the gas grid in in BC. So. You know, in that sense, there is some quite interesting big stuff that's going on. Um, it's just not been at the government level. And I think that's something we touched on with your super as well, which is kind of policy you know, and how important policy is or isn't. Right. And in some senses, you know, it's interesting that we've had these you know, handful of very, very large projects that have gone ahead without there necessarily being a very robust policy framework. And one wonders what would have happened had there been a more robust policy framework in place. You know, and actually also, Andrew, to the discussion we did have with you, super, 
um, you know, the, the discussion of America. You know, if we'd had four years of a more uh, clean energy focused administration, or at least, you know, one that had allowed states like California to, you know, effectively focus more on, on their own vehicle standards rather than fighting the federal government on on things, would that have created a... Yeah, you mean, you mean a, a federal administration that was even just passively uninterested in, in, in clean energy rather than, you know, actively fighting against it? <laughs> Yeah, or, or, you know, a Republican Party that was ideologically consistent <laughs> about states' rights. I mean, you know, if states' rights should mean, you know, <laughs> that California could do what it wants unless it's what the Republicans don't want. Yeah, I mean, I mean the only thing I'm going to say is if you ever want to look at a party that cares about its people, Ted Cruz going on holiday to Cancun. <laughs> uh, I, don't think, I, don't think we lo- I don't think we lost the potential future guest on the uh, Ted Cruz insult. No, I, I I don't think so either. I mean, it's a joke. But look, I, I think that is a, I think that's also an important part of the Canadian story too, right? You know, if you'd had in the last four years an administration that had been vaguely focused on this, the American government has been actually for a long time interested in fuel cells. And you know, a friend of the podcast and a podcast that many people are familiar with, Juga Shah, is of course now in the US DOE. Uh, I believe heading their loans program um, now at DOE. So that will make a huge difference. And you know. It, it just is one of those things where Canada, I think, can't avoid that kind of gravitational pull that America has on a lot of what the industry can do, the pace they can deploy. And it will be really interesting to see you know, how much of a difference the Biden administration, especially now the stimulus has all been passed, makes on moving the rate up, move the dial, sorry, not the radar. It's worth saying that, you know, as well, that, that even over the last, you know, kind of number of years, the... Um, the, the DOE's kind of hydrogen and fuel cell program has has continued to 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 invest. The H two at scale program has been has been successful and and has led to kind of projects being developed and and innovated with. You know the national labs have continued to engage on this space. Um, you know, so so we're there is a running start here as well. Just you know, you're absolutely right, Chris, uh, in terms of like what what may happen now in the next four years. But it's also good to, for for folks listening in to understand that like this is a running start. It's not a it's not a an, a truly cold you know how cast can you get out of the blocks to catch up kind of game. There's been a lot of work done both at the state level. Um, and and the federal level and and using the kind of the national labs infrastructure to be you know reasonably kind of engaged and and you know kind of putting in together uh, funding packages for both projects and innovation. So there's a real opportunity, I, and that's and I think that's the important takeaway here. The next four years could be a, a real opportunity for acceleration. Um, and building on a lot of good work that's been done for the last maybe 10 or 12. And Patrick, I'm going to, I know we, we don't have much time left here, but uh, I wanted to kind of build on that actually, right? You know, Josipa closed on a, I, I would think, you know, we, we have a, we, clean energy is always kind of a, it, it's a tricky area to be hyper positive in, particularly when it comes to U.S. policy. Uh, but she closed on a pretty, pretty positive note. Uh, talking about the you know incoming uh, Biden administration and what she sees coming out of that and the future of that and what it means for North America in terms of clean energy, do you share her optimism for uh, the potential the future of U.S. policy in the U.S. market in the clean energy space? You know, look, uh, positive, yes. Why? Because God, why? Why not? You know, there's there's a couple of things happening here. Number one, government momentum certainly has shifted back towards you know what it was in, in you know 
you know, what is it, five years ago now, right? It's close, certainly close to that, possibly even more bullish, right? Additionally, we're seeing movement on in the investor space, right? Um, critically, the, the you know very big funds, uh, prominent investors in the space are moving. Uh, their their technology focus and also worth reminding everyone that the large oil and gas uh, companies of the world are also doing similar kind of things are they are they divesting their entire business no but but are they making more significant movements yes they are all of which becomes uh, kind of this little uh, kind of virtuous cycle of well there's government policy which in, uh, justifies the investment kind of positions and there's investment positions that validate the government policy. So we start to get that, that momentum where a lot of things start to self-validate. And we're getting projects and, and technologies and companies that are actually starting to deliver deliver the goods. And if if you get all of that, I don't know how you can't be optimistic. But then we're, you know, we end up at the hard places that we always talk about, right? Like it's time to roll out at scale and deploy efficiently and build the infrastructure and, and get this up and running and going. Um, and that's where we get to. And that's where government, you know, particularly on the infrastructure piece plays a big role. And there is a, there is an infrastructure piece that I think is coming out. I think is a part of the jobs bill in the next little while. But yeah, like that's, you know, we're, we're at a very, very important inflection point here. So I'm optimistic, but um, we can still we can still keep our keep our eyes open rather than being blindly so. Chris, I don't want to let Patrick have the last word on optimism here, so <laughs> I, am going, I am going to give you a chance to sound off, but you got to keep it brief. We don't have much time left. Maybe that is the <laughs> maybe that actually is the way to sign off. We don't have much time okay. left. You know, there's COP26 <laughs> in November, and we you know this is the decade. Stuff has to happen. You know, the Biden administration is showing it's hungry and we need to see it. And if it doesn't happen in in this year, I, you know, I think we are all in serious trouble. Um, and I just hope, you know, we're seeing we are seeing that investors do care. We're seeing that customers care. We're seeing businesses care. And now we need to see those generally voiced concerns convert into real hard projects and cash and people actually fundamentally. And here's the really difficult bit, willing to accept a future where we pay more for energy. Because that's what's going to happen, right? Down the line, the unspoken bit about this is that we're not going to be living in a world of cheap, low, affordable energy like we have done for the last 100 years. And at some point, that very ugly conversation is going to have to come up. So I think there's a lot of cause to be optimistic, but I think um, we need to see it start happening. And we need people to start being honest about what the trade-offs are going to be. And uh, hopefully, at least we've got a better administration in place to start having those conversations. Did you and Patrick have like a little back channel there where you're like, all right, well, I was optimistic. Chris, so you got to say something really uh, negative there towards the end. Well, it's so rare that I hear Patrick being the optimist. I thought it was a good way to balance it out. Yeah, no, yeah. Things were really getting off the rails with the optimism there, guys. Okay. All right, guys, we're going to leave it there. We'll come back to this new optimistic shift in tone uh, next week. So cheers. Cheers. (laughs) And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge thank you to Josipa Petrunich, president and CEO of Qtrick, for making the time to walk us through her thoughts on the future of zero emission transportation and the great work that her team is doing to bring innovative solutions to cities and communities throughout Canada. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And thank you to our sponsors. We really appreciate the support. 
And as you know, we do love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at at about hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on Everything About Hydrogen.